Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. Remember when bread was the least complicated part of our diets? For a very long time, humans rejoiced in the nutrition to be found in wheat and in the wide variety of ways it could be prepared. In the last few years, though, many people have become concerned that our love of baked goods and pasta, and specifically the gluten that gives them their structure, might be the reason so many people feel terrible these days. Stephen Yaffa found himself wondering about this when his wife decided to avoid gluten in the hopes of relieving a sore neck, losing weight, and gaining mental clarity. Skeptical but open-minded, he investigated scientific research into what gluten does in recipes and in human bodies, and he also looked into the effect of modern farming, milling, and food processing practices on what exactly ends up on our dinner tables. Stephen Yaffa shares what he learned in his new book, Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. Steve, welcome to Think. Chris, thank you for having me on the show. So your wife was told she had something called gluten neck, and she resolved to quit eating the stuff. What was your first thought when you heard that? Uh, I thought it was the punchline to a joke. <laughs> um, I uh, was sitting there reading a magazine, and she walked in and, uh, from a health retreat she uh, had experienced with a few of her friends, and um, she announced that uh, the body worker at the health retreat uh, told her she could not uh, be um, worked on because of her inflamed neck. Uh, and I was waiting for the rest of the uh, joke, but there wasn't any, and she was very serious. The next thing I knew, she um, was emptying out our cupboards of everything that uh, had gluten in it. And um, I have to tell you that she and I both have an aversion to food fads and always have had. So this was a very unusual situation I found myself in because uh, she was quite serious about it. And indeed, she ate nothing with gluten for at least six months. Did she notice a difference? No, she really didn't. What she noticed is as I started to make uh, my own sourdough bread, which we'll get into later in this conversation, a little bit in a little bit more depth perhaps, um, she, the only thing she noticed is that she had a longing for something that she couldn't eat, which she, she and I didn't talk about very much, and I didn't in any way try to persuade her. But I was doing my own uh, at-home research by making my breads, and uh, the aroma filled the house. So uh, she basically noticed uh, really no change uh, physically, although she gave it her best shot. But she did notice that she developed this uh, uh, um, emotional angst based on the fact that she couldn't eat the bread I was making. There may be at least some people out there who have gotten the idea that they should be looking for gluten-free foods without actually being clear on what it is. So will you explain for us what is gluten? I will. Uh, I'll do it in a, in, in, a sh in a short form for sure. It is um, a combination of two proteins uh, found in wheat, rye, and barley. Um, the um, proteins are gliadin and glutenin. And uh, they basically exist in the interior part of the seed, which is called the endosperm, which is really where all the refined white flour comes from. What does gluten do in breads and doughs, and why then are things made with gluten-free flour often so different in texture? Uh, what it does is create the air bubbles that get trapped uh, that's really escaping carbon dioxide released uh, from yeast and uh, lactic acid bacteria or released uh, from yeast in commercial breads, not not that bacteria. And um, it traps that uh, those um, escaping gases 
because it's elastic and extensible both based on these two uh, proteins so that it really has the effect of a balloon. And uh, when you cut into bread and notice um, all those air bubbles that make it wonderful and create the leavening that uh, rises the bread in the oven, that's really what uh, gluten is responsible for. And when you don't have that, you don't have that rise, which is why gluten-free products have no loft to them whatsoever if they happen to be breads. We'll talk about people who have medical issues with gluten in a minute, but how does a normal body digest gluten? What does the body do with it? Well, it depends on whose body it is, and this is a this is an issue too because everybody is built differently, as we know, and individuals have very different responses to gluten. Um, Basically, it passes through your gut into your bloodstream like anything else. They break down these uh, amino acids, and the question is how much they are broken down. If they're not broken down sufficiently, they can cause inflammation. The most severe version of this, of course, is celiac disease. That's a genetic disease that really affects probably 0.9% of all of us, less than 1%. And everyone else who is um, sensitive or thinks they're sensitive to gluten but is not a celiac uh, really doesn't have the same effect on the uh, lining of the uh, intestine that celiac disease does where it destroys the villi, which are these small uh, feathery-like um, uh, elements in the, in the sides of the intestine that absorb and pass through all the nutrients and um, so it creates a huge amount of damage in our autoimmune system. So people with celiac disease, it's not simply that gluten makes them feel bad. It's actually doing damage and can cause them, if they don't figure it out and cut gluten from their diets, it can cause them to be malnourished. Not only malnourished, but also, you know, it's an autoimmune disease. And so it really is the uh, body attacking itself. And it really screws up the uh, autoimmune um, 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 reaction to uh, all sorts of different and creates all sorts of different uh, debilitating issues, uh, a- um, aching joints, and um, it goes from there. So it has uh, it is really quite a brutal disease. As anybody who's listening to this, including by the way, uh, enormous bouts of f- fatigue that make even climbing up a stair up a stairs an exhausting experience for some people. So anyone in your audience who has celiac disease, can really respond to this really more effectively than I can in terms of what it does. But I've met a lot of celiacs doing my research, and, uh, you know, there there is a, um, a real toll, unfortunately, that gluten takes on this very small percentage of us. You mentioned that celiac is a genetic disease, but it's not necessarily something that presents from birth. It can develop really at any age. Is that right? Yes, that's a very good point. And a lot of people who are genetically disposed to celiac disease go through life quite fine and never really contract it. On the other hand, somebody with that same genetic disposition will one day eat a bagel or something like that, and it will respond in terms of triggering this autoimmune system where the body really attacks itself. And from that point on, they cannot eat any any gluten uh, whatsoever. So where this starts to get a little more confusing is when we look at people who have gluten intolerance, but they they don't have the antibodies that indicate celiac disease. How common is that intolerance, and how would we know if we had that? That's a good question. The best clinical evidence on that, which is a, a, a research 
program conducted over many years at the University of Maryland by Dr. Alicia Fazano, one of the leading celiac physicians in this country, indicates that um, at most 6% of us self-report symptoms that are similar to what celiacs report with the major difference that the villi, that the uh, issues dealing with celiacs that, that are so brutal uh, are not part of that problem. Um, most non-celiacs who have uh, any kind of issues will include bloating, uh, achy joints, and fatigue. Those are really the three major symptoms. And uh, there is a guy named uh, a, a gastroenterologist in Australia named Peter Gibson who first reported from uh, a test in which he found um, that non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity exists. He first attributed it to gluten and later went back and uh, did a test that actually found there was a different cause for what he had first attributed to non-celiac gluten sensitivity. His view, and I talked to him, is that really uh, maybe one half of 1% of us actually have this kind of sensitivity. So to answer your question, the range uh, is between 0.5% and probably 6% at, at the top. All right. Well, let's let's set those people aside. We're very sorry that they experience these extremely uncomfortable or even dangerous symptoms. But for the rest of us, how after thousands of years of human culture, like extolling the delights of bread, um, has this backlash developed against eating wheat among people who do not have a documented medical condition? Well, you know, uh, if we could answer that, we would both be really rich because we would be able to predict the next great fad. Right. Um, and we really can't. You know, things go viral, in, particularly in the universe we live in right now where, where media is saturated and social media has, you know, the speed greater than the speed of light. Um, basically, this one started like a food fads based on, on probably a uh, kind of a version of the Aikens uh, low-fat, uh, low-carb diet. And it escalated when uh, people like um, you know, celebrities like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow caught on to it and, and, and really made it the key, the cornerstone of, of, of her blog and so forth. And then there's also the component of athletes, uh, particularly in the Tour de Force from the American team, who started to substitute rice for um, pasta because they were felt that it was just too heavy a carb load, which really sort of triggered – uh, a magazine article in Men's Health about the possible effects of gluten. This was all speculative, but it, um, you know, it created a, a sense, hey, maybe there's a one-stop, one-shop solution to things that will get us better quickly and won't have, make me think about 48 things I can't eat, you know, that I've got to take a laundry list into a, into a grocery store to remember. I just have to remember not to eat gluten and I'll, and I'll you know, possibly feel better. And then it gained a, a social cachet because being non-gluten sort of suggests that I'm really taking superior uh, control of my body and really paying great deal of attention to my toning and so forth. So it crosses a whole bunch of lines and it also taps into probably to some degree the true believer syndrome, which is that there's one thing out there that will solve my problems. Is there some reason that people left upon gluten rather than some other chemical compound to be found in wheat? Good question. Um, I don't know about other chemical compounds that that have ever been controversial in wheat. I do know that once this was latched onto by um, the author of Wheat Belly, for example, William Davis, who did 
a huge amount to promote the uh, gluten as a, as Satan's spawn, <laughs> and then picked up uh, eventually uh, by David Perlmutter in Grain Brain. By the time these two uh, physicians were finished with uh, gluten, it was basically incarcerated for life with no chance of parole. Many people, Steve, have heard the claims that the wheat that is commercially available today is somehow different from what our ancestors ate and, and much higher in gluten. What did you learn about that? Uh, that's absolutely not true, actually. The amount of gluten, the percentage of gluten, which ranges between 9% in what's called soft wheats through about 13% in hard wheats, bread wheats, has remained consistent at least since this was checked into in the late 19th century. And, of course, I didn't know any of this until I talked to you know people who really, geneticists who really get this stuff, uh, Bob Graybosch at the USDA and a few other people out in Kansas, Nebraska, who spend really a lot of time out in the wheat fields and really know what they're talking about. So, um, you know, there's this whole thing about uh, gluten genes also mutating and becoming m- much more dangerous. That also is an extreme exaggeration. What has happened is that the technology for refining grain changed dramatically at the end of the 19th century and when roller milling came in. And really, it's it's the processing that is the issue, not so much the agricultural differences, although uh, farmers now use a lot more nitrogen than they used to to increase yield, and that makes the interior of the seed, the endosperm, larger, creating really... Um, you know more of the uh, of the seed that becomes the white flower, but the percentage of gluten within that really hasn't changed. We're speaking this hour with author Stephen Yaffa. His new book is called Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. You can be part of the conversation by calling 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Stephen Yaffa, author of the new book, Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. You can be part of the conversation at 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. Okay, Steve, we're going to step back again for another one of my very basic questions. Um, As people are familiar, um, a grain of wheat, a whole grain of wheat looks nothing like, you know, a bag of flour, what we find inside there. Talk a little bit about the structure of wheat grains and what has to be done to those grains in order to make something that we could bake a cake with. Uh, That's a great question, Chris. And it was a question that uh, people who are our great ancestors have been dealing with for 10,000 years, how to separate the hull and the embryo, uh, the bran and the germ from the interior called the endosperm. Because 
um, the brand, as we all know, is hard, and it's and and the uh, embryo has fatty acids in it, which can turn rancid. And the answer to your question is basically what you do is you crush it, pound it, try some way to break through all of that, and extract the interior white endosperm from the middle of it. Um, this was done from a variety of ways, and if you go back to Pompeii, you'll see um, that excavated. Not only did they have 33 bakeries, they had what their version of milling was at that time, where they essentially kept churning uh, these two uh, stone disks in different directions, which crushed the seeds, and uh, then they did a lot of manual labor to separate these things out. That changed uh, in terms of... Um, whether hydraulic power could do the same thing. But essentially, it was really all stone grilling, uh, milling one way or another for centuries. Uh, got more refined, and there's a way of blowing off the chaff and getting rid of the elements that, uh, that are really not part of the, of, of the grain you want to keep. Um, but nothing changed as dramatically as roller milling at the end of the 19th century when technology came around to be able to extract the white interior, which became which becomes white flour, much more efficiently. And from that point on, by the way, that was invented by the guy, or actually the first factory was put into motion by the guy um, whose uh, mill became General Mills. Hmm. Um, th- when that happened, the story of wheat and really uh, changed dramatically. Uh, and... It became possible for the middle class, for people with not a lot of money, even the lower classes now, to start eating bread that had um, a white interior and was much more palatable than in the past. Uh, Up until that point, white flour had always been an aristocratic commodity that was really only available to the upper classes, and the peasant breads were always the dark ones that had all sorts of little bits of bran and stuff in them that sometimes, you know... uh, created issues of cavities in your teeth and um, and was never, you know, considered to be anything but pure sustenance. I was surprised to learn that there's no such thing, or at least not commercially available, as genetically modified flour. I assume that wheat, like many other things that we eat in this country, had been genetically modified. No, there's no genetically modified wheat, and there's a very simple reason for that. No countries in Asia and Europe that are the main markets for our farmers will accept genetically modified wheat. And so there's there's really no impetus because we sell a lot of our wheat uh, both in Asia and uh, in Europe. And genetically modified in this case, of course, means an external um, component has been added to the DNA, for example, Roundup Ready Soy or Roundup Ready Corn. Both of those commodities have about 80 to 90 are 80 to 90% genetically modified. There's crossbreeding going on in wheat, uh, which is really um, a hybridization process, but that's all within the same species. What's the difference between white flour and whole wheat flour? What does whole wheat contain that has been separated out of white flour? Most white flour has a little bit of bran and uh, germ in it. That is uh, um, the... um, really the source of all the nutrients and minerals and um, that make wheat so incredibly healthy and nutritious in our diet, which it really should be a part of unless you happen to have a severe reaction. And 
when you strip away all of that, you basically wind up with kind of like the interior of an Oreo cookie, <laughs> which is, um, you know, has uh, maybe give you a quick sugar rush, but has no real value to you. Uh, so when you put together 100% whole wheat flour, you can be sure you're getting uh, really all the essentials from both the bran and the embryo, as well as the em uh, endosperm in the wheat. And fortunately, um, Millers and Bakers and so forth have gotten a lot better at uh, creating whole wheat products that no longer taste like roofing material, which is what <laughs> um, Robin Williams once called it. So um, when we buy white flour, it's often called enriched, and that means somebody's artificially pumping back in some nutrients to that flour? Exactly. Everything is stripped out of out of a whole uh, out of uh, white flour. In fact, it created such a problem uh, uh, in terms of nutrition that uh, for about 20 or 30 years uh, that or even a little bit longer in this country that when um, World War II broke out, um, doctors really quickly understood that at least half of the young men in this country were not physically fit. And the reason basically they decided was that they were eating so much white bread, Wonder Bread kind of products, that they were missing all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and uh, Bs, B vitamins in particular, uh, that it initiated the idea of actually enriching bread, which is basically to spray back into the bread powders that uh, really contain the nutrients that have been stripped away. So you can see how much damage that has done. Okay, so we spray back in some nutrients. Is there evidence that our bodies use those artificial additives in the same way that they would use the nutrients that come naturally in whole wheat? Uh, another great question because there's a huge debate within this community about whether or not you can pull something asunder and then, you know, recreate it with the same value that it had initially. And anybody who is in the artisan baking milling community uh, will tell you that um, – and also, really, in a nutritionist who know this stuff pretty well and chemists will pretty much tell you that, no, you're not really getting the same value because there's a symbiotic relationship that gets stripped away in the process of all of that. And you don't really create the same conditions that you do if you're, use, if you're really uh, not uh, separating these things out uh, and then artificially putting them back in. Okay, Steve, what effect does wheat, eating wheat have on blood sugar levels? Let's assume we're eating a slice of bread that doesn't contain sugar and doesn't, isn't eaten with jam or something. Uh, what does that do to our blood sugar? If it is refined white flour, the starch immediately cons uh, uh, converts to glucose in your uh, bloodstream, and it shoots up the sugar level. And that's also true for packaged wheats that are called whole wheat. Um, packaged goods that are called 100% whole wheat have uh, less of a spike, slightly less of a spike. By the way, this is the glycemic index we're talking about. And they come in on a scale of 100, 100 being all glucose. They come in in the 70s. Right. The real changes in the processing that goes into long fermented wheats. So when we're talking about the subject, we really are talking about not only the, 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 the seed itself. What really makes a difference is the way that seed is processed commercially um, through uh, um every stage to the point where it gets into the oven as flour. And if you're long fermenting over two days, as opposed to fermenting something from start to finish in four hours, which is what commercial bakeries do, you're lowering the glycemic index dramatically. For example, sourdough breads that are long fermented have an index of 54, which is very much in the safe zone. 
Uh, that's because the sugar goes into the bloodstream at a much slower rate through the matrix created in the sourdough than it does in commercial breads. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Lindsay in North Richland Hills. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Great show today. Thanks. Um, yes, I was calling to um, actually ask a question. I've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I, like many other people with other autoimmune diseases, have scoured the Internet trying to find any sort of research-based reason why I should think about going gluten-free. And um, after talking to many doctors, I just can't find a consensus. And before kind of falling into that lifestyle, I really want to kind of know um, the science behind why I'm choosing to do it. And so I'm just calling to see if you could comment on or speak to and the effects of gluten on other autoimmune diseases other than celiac disease. Thanks for your call. Well, first of all, I never give medical advice. And uh, even if I were a physician, I wouldn't give advice in a, in a blanket way that uh, uh, Davis and Perlmutter do because we're all individuals. Uh, very commonly, thyroid autoimmune issues I've heard about as being uh, really related to gluten. And I think a gastroenterologist who really understands the effect potentially um, of of gluten um, and other physicians who are specialists, uh, endocrinologists, um, are really worth checking out here. I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think the research is sufficient yet, as, as, as your caller is pointing out, to make a, a clear distinction. But I certainly have heard that, uh, along with celiac disease, people with thyroid issues sometimes have an adverse reaction to, to, to gluten. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go next to Kayla in Denton. Hello, Kayla. Hi. Uh, first, I wanted to know um, if your research yielded any, um, or if you have an opinion on the viral food trend of gluten-free labeling on processed food products on things that wouldn't even contain gluten in the first place. And two, it took me forever to find a bread recipe that didn't call for adding sugar, um, I finally found one. And if I use um, whole grain wheat flour versus white refined flour, which the recipe calls for, what in it would I need to adjust? Well, first of all, adding sugar is, is something I never do, and I've been making bread now for a couple of years, and I, I would highly recommend not doing that. You'll have to probably add more water. By the way, you know, there's plenty on the on, on YouTube, as you can imagine, in terms of not only recipes but also uh, procedures, which I would urge you to do. Um, it, it, it really is not um, in any way at all connected to any kind of realistic approach to start looking at things that have non-gluten in them that are totally nonsensical, non-gluten dog food being the first one that comes to mind, non-gluten shampoo, non-gluten nail polish. You know, what we're seeing is an industry built to some degree on a need that people have, but on a large degree built on on, on pure you know silliness, frankly, uh, which I think is really partially what defines any food fad. So stay away from all of that stuff, and I'm sure you already do. I would also really suggest staying away from non-gluten foods, as I mentioned as well. Not certainly not grains like quinoa, but uh, you know all all the processed stuff. I hope that answers your question. If it doesn't, let me know. 
Steve, when I bake bread at home, the only things that go into it are whole wheat flour, water, salt, and a tiny little bit of yeast because I like to leave it overnight to rise. Um, What's in the bread that we buy in plastic bags at the grocery store? Well, if I had one with me and I turned over the uh, package and I started to read the ingredients, I probably would come away, assuming it's not organic, by the way, I'd probably come away with 20 to 30 ingredients. And a lot of those ingredients have really a very special place in terms of processing the bread because when you think about flour plus water, as we all did as kids, it turns into paste that sticks. That's library paste, you know. Um, and what happens in a bakery is that you've got these troughs that all the glow, that all the dough has to slide down, and it's got all of these processes that have to happen quickly. So you really need lubricants in that dough, to, uh, conditioners as they're called, uh, to facilitate that. And um, a lot of the conditioners that are in bread, a lot of these ingredients really make the bread friendly for the machinery, not necessarily friendly for the way we are built and the way that our systems need that nutrition to to arrive for us to make the most of it. So it's, it's good for the machinery, not so good for the internal human machinery. Exactly, Chris. And if you're making bread at home and you enjoy doing it the way you're doing it, great. What I would suggest is that you go out and find, a, if you happen to like this, by the way, a, a sourdough starter and maybe uh, investigate that whole world because that's going to change dramatically the, the kinds of, of nutritional benefits uh, that uh, your, uh, certainly that your gut in terms of probiotics will derive from that bread. Yeah, help us understand the difference. A lot of people know there's a, a bit of a difference in, in taste. Um, what's the difference when you leaven with yeast versus leavening with a sourdough starter? Well, if you've got 24 hours, I'll tell you, but let me try to keep it quick. <laughs> what happens is you're, you're creating an environment which creates a totally different kind of yeast and, a, and lactic acid bacteria. And lactic acid bacteria, as we all know, in yogurt and all these things is good for us. One of the things, and by the way, it's a great source of fiber. So even if you don't go through this, if you do 100% whole wheat uh, baking, you're really giving your your system, the fiber that it, it needs, and the healthy bacteria in our in our gut feeds off that fiber. And so that's a great source for it. Um, but um, in addition, uh, what sourdough uh, does is, as I mentioned earlier, it slows down the metabolism of, of starch into sugar for your bloodstream, which is important. And what really does in terms of, of, of this gluten issue is it breaks down the gluten molecules. If you imagine uh, tangled fishing lines that have beads interspersed in them, that's essentially what these two proteins look like under a microscope. If you allow the sourdough fermentation over 16 or more hours to um, work upon that gluten complex, you're going to see it scissoring through these bulky gluten molecules and breaking them up into these smaller peptides, which are little strings of amino acid, those are much easier to digest. And if you have non-gluten sensitivity and you dearly miss eating bread, which some people do and some people don't, but if you're one of those people, go find an artisanal local baker. Have a conversation with that person and um, buy that whole wheat sourdough they're making and see what happens. I'm, I'm, you know, I've talked to hundreds of people at this point who've had the experience of being able to tolerate that bread. And there's something about the the mystery of the starter that is fascinating. Um, Do you have to be a a real expert in the kitchen to be able to maintain one of these things? No, not really. You just have to be a little bit diligent in what they call feed it, which is basically nothing more than adding a little flour and water every day for about a week or so. 
And, uh, you know, King Arthur Flower is an extremely good website to go to. It's not only great in terms of instruction. They actually sell a starter that makes the whole process a little bit easier. This can sound very intimidating. It can sound daunting and, and really, you know, too, too much work. But when you do it, you find that it actually it isn't really uh, that, you know, my case, I don't find that to, to be true at all. And it's kind of fun because after a few days, you come down and you see this kind of bubbling vat or little dish or whatever you're making this stuff in. And you think, hey, this has a life of its own. And from that point on, you add a certain amount of that to more flour and water and create the leaven and go from there. And uh, so, no, it's not really all that intimidating. Author Stephen Yaffa is my guest. His book is Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. We'll resume the conversation and take more of your calls and emails after the break. Our number is 1-800-933-5372. Email address think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with author Stephen Yaffa. His new book is Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. You can join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372. And that's where we find Sandy in Richardson. Hi, Sandy. Yes, I am delighted to have this subject being discussed so intelligently today. Oh, good. Um, My uncle was one of the first people uh, to be really diagnosed with celiac sprue in, in 1959. Mm. And what happened at that point is that his wife, uh, who had a career of her own, gave it up in order to experiment with all different kinds of recipes. And over mm, the next 25 years, she published three books on uh, things that avoided gluten and uh, in her research discovered that at that time there were any number of foods that were labeled as uh, pure rice flour or pure something else uh, were in fact contained uh, wheat. And she had a battle with one of the major distributors of flour in this country. And when it came right down to it, she won her case. And that is one of the basic reasons that we have so much truth in labeling today in this country. But um, one of the things that's really good in her book, uh, all of her books, unfortunately, are out of print, but there's a list of friends and foes that has all of the things that are commonly available, such as mustard and Worcestershire sauce and things that you would never think had gluten in them. And when you investigate, yeah, they do. Sandy, thank you so much for your call. That's a great point that she brings up, Steve, that, um, you know, sometimes we see, you know, gluten-free gummy bears and we th- we roll our eyes. But there are some items that we wouldn't imagine have gluten that, in fact, do contain trace amounts. I have um, talked to people about this uh, in, in the um, industry, and uh, they tell me that... Um, if you took all the gluten products off of the supermarket shelf, you'd wind up with about two-thirds 
of the amount of uh, products. Wow. That's a huge. <laughs> that's a huge amount of foods that have gluten in them. Soy sauce being another, and as the caller said, you know, mustard, ketchup, and so forth. And certainly, you know, these are trace, generally trace amounts, which don't matter to most of us, but do absolutely do to anybody with celiac disease or advanced thyroid condition. So uh, I think the truth in labeling uh, has to be stronger. And I wasn't indicating before when I said that uh, a lot of silliness involves uh, non-gluten products. Certainly if you, uh, you know, label things in a way that allows people who have an issue with uh, a gluten to make it an intelligent decision, you're doing them a great favor. That really has become about 20 parts per million um, as the maximum that anything can have in it without creating a, a problem for people with genetic illness. We have an email here from May Jean who says, uh, my understanding is that a few days before harvest, wheat plants are sprayed with a herbicide like Roundup to kill the plant and force it to shed its grains more readily at harvest. I'm curious uh, what degree um, the herbicide remains in the flower after processing. That's a good question. There's a woman named Stephanie Senoff who uh, thinks that uh, the Roundup and the uh, glyphosate in that has uh, contributed uh, dramatically to the increase of uh, gluten intolerance. Uh, basically, people who are geneticists, plant geneticists, disagree with that completely. And people who are out in the fields looking at this, uh, you know, uh, academics and others who who really spend a long time paying attention to these uh, issues uh, find that not to be true at all that the uh, grain the grains are not sprayed before harvest um, it's a it would make perfect sense but I, it doesn't really hold up certainly doesn't hold up to the evidence that um, I checked out what happens to all the components of wheat that don't go into white flour but that are edible if you process them enough. Good question. In a, in, a, in a commercial bakery or commercial milling operation like Horizon, which is ConAgra, um, it goes to animal feed. Animals get the best part of the wheat by <laughs> far. And what, what, what we get is the leftovers, which essentially is the white flour that, you know, creates, you know, a, a, an issue for a, a lot of us. Um, and certainly contributes to obesity. Uh, and by the way, I mean, I'm not a purist. I understand we eat white flour and various things, but the um, the excessive amount of white flour in our diet is really brutal to our systems. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go to Julie in Fort Worth. Hi, Julie. Hi. Um, I, you know, your email that you just read is basically touching on uh, the reason for my call as well. Um you know, I've seen, um, you know, uh, figures by the USDA uh, documenting the, uh, the volume of Roundup used on um, wheat and other plants um, at harvest. And as they've been dramatically increasing over the last 15 years, and, and um, you know, a lot of the research does show that um, wheat is being uh, soaked or treated with Roundup right before the harvest um, to, as the emailer said, to stimulate um, increased seed production and to also kill the weeds um, to make it easier on the farmer to clear the field before the um, after the harvest. But um, and that uh, these increased amounts of glyphosate in the wheat um, could be a leading cause of a lot of the intestinal diseases that um, we're seeing now, the celiac disease and gluten intolerances and Crohn's disease and, and these types. And, it, and, and there is a likelihood that it's not um, the gluten per se that people are reacting to, but the glyphosate. 
Well, uh, thanks so much for your call, Julie. Um, is there a way, Steve, that we can ensure, do we have to buy organic wheat to ensure that we don't have uh, exposure to pesticides when we eat it? Uh, yes, even if I, I would debate that and, and certainly would uh, uh, ask this uh, a person to uh, email me and I'll send her some information on that that uh, may change her mind a bit. But nevertheless, uh, to answer your question directly, Chris, yes, absolutely, eat organic wheat. Uh, good for you for a thousand reasons, but one of them is that this glyphosate issue. If you're if you're concerned at all about it, doesn't exist when you're when you're eating organic wheats. People are concerned about wheat itself, and and you know now there's this sense that there must be something really bad about it. As you know, we struggle with obesity. I, I, I want to come back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is just like eating too much of it is bad for us. Um, when wheat is really soft and palatable, as it is with white flour refined products, it's just really easy to like cram in a lot more than our bodies actually need, isn't it? It is, and um, you know when you eat um, a whole grain, basically what you're doing is is eating the fiber that essentially is giving you a satiation, uh, which essentially is telling your system that you're full. So you know it's like uh, all sorts of things. You know you can eat things that that pretty much bypass those triggers that we have inside of us until one day you wake up and you weigh. 30 pounds and you don't know how it got there or you feel ill after you eat, it's 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 just kind of like common sense in a way. You know, when you strip anything from us, the nutrients and vitamins and the components in it that, that our systems need, you're ultimately going to pay a certain amount of price for that. And I think as uh, one of the nutritionists said for me, you know, as a, as a, just as a, as a civilization, <laughs> Americans don't really get into being uh, moderating their, their diets really with any efficiency compared to uh, other countries around the world. And it's that lack of moderation, I think, that gets a lot of people in trouble. Well, you remember that old food pyramid that we had when we were kids? And I think along sure. the bottom it said like 6 to 11 servings of grains, which, you know, sounded crazy to me at the time. And I guess that's been thrown out. But um, they never meant 11 slices of white bread a day, right? No, they didn't. They didn't. And I really would tell you, you know, that uh, eating whole grains, you know, uh, 100% whole grain foods, is something that, you know, you'd be very careful to throw that out of your diet, despite what Wheat Belly and these other books say, because, you know, you're, you've are you got medical evidence that this this reduces diabetes, that that these grains are extremely helpful in heart issues, and um, they reduce obesity, and they actually extend lifespan, as mentioned earlier. Um, you know, you've got these studies of hundreds of thousands of people um, so, uh, you know, you, whether you eat three or four servings a day or whatever it is, you know, make them whole grain if you can. I mean, I, I you know, inside every journalist, I think there's an evangelist trying to get out. And <laughs> I think that's that's probably me. <laughs> How often do you bake your sourdough bread? I bake it uh, weekly. I make uh, or it's sometimes biweekly if I make two loaves. But I'm usually, you know, at some phase of that, you know, there's some a starter bubbling in my uh, on my shelf or I, uh, on the counter rather, and I stick it in the fridge if I'm going away for a few days. But I do it regularly and I enjoy it. There's a, the, the process requires a lot of patience and the whole mixing process is kind of meditative at the same time. And then you get the reward of eating bread that does not go stale for over a week. <laughs> that you know because it it, it really resists uh, uh, fungal activities. And um, so, uh, you know, it's all reward, no punishment. It's really kind of a wonderful thing to do. Back to the phones now. We have Zach on the line in Hearst. Hello, Zach. 
Hi, uh, great program. Thanks. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so I eat a good amount of seitan, uh, which is essentially vital wheat gluten. Obviously, I know that this is a bit more processed than wheat you'd find in the field, and I was curious as to what Stephen thought about that. Well, you're talking to a seitan uh, eater for sure. You know, I've been eating seitan for many years. As, as some of your uh, listeners, I'm sure, know, seitan, as the caller said, essentially is concentrated gluten that um, I don't actually know how much it's been pro- uh, processed, but I do know that uh, other components uh, like soy and so forth have been used as seasonings, and it's really used mostly in Asian foods, and you'll find it in, in Whole Foods markets and so forth. Uh, because I'm a vegetarian too, although I eat fish, uh, like the caller, I I you know introduce it into all sorts of dishes that might call for meat, which I haven't eaten in in, in decades. So uh, it may not be the perfect substitute for that, but I find it very enjoyable, and I've never had any reaction to it at all. An email from Sylvia asks if you learned why whole wheat flour is more expensive than white flour. It's probably more, particularly organic. It's it may be more expensive than white flour because the processing uh, is more laborious, and I'm sure in in any kind of food production, time is money. Um, but beyond that, there are really um, not that you know many reasons. I can tell you that of all the wheat processed in this country, only five percent of that wheat is processed as as whole. Uh, wheat, so you can see the predominance of uh, of refined white uh, flour by comparison. Hmm. Let's go uh, one more time to the phones. I think we have time to speak with Larry in Dallas. Hi, Larry. Hi. Um, I heard earlier on the show that you said that the first uh, case of celiac disease was diagnosed in 1959. Uh, that was a that was a, excuse me that was a caller. I don't know that, that it was an early oh, diagnosis, what? but go ahead. Okay. But uh, it's a recent phenomenon, I think we can agree. Uh, it, it strikes me as odd that it is a recent phenomenon, and I would argue that the microbiome has a large role to play in the uh, incidence of this. What do we know about that, Steve? Well, I think your caller is right. The microbiome is, is the term used for the gut bacteria. Uh, and I think, uh, by the way, celiac disease has been around a long time. Certainly after World War II, the initial diagnosis uh for celiac disease became uh, uh, pretty much a uh, factor that had really been looked at that closely before. But um, I don't know how much gut bacteria plays in this. I do know that the villi, which are these, as I mentioned earlier, these these um, feathery uh, kinds of tissue in the gut wall, uh, play a big, big role in uh, celiac disease. When they get destroyed, everything rushes into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there and creates the autoimmune issue. But as far as the the role of uh, bacteria in the gut in this whole process, I really don't know, and I haven't read anything that involves that. Having read, uh, for purposes of research, some of the books and articles that have needlessly scared people away from gluten who don't have a, a, a biological sensitivity to it, how how do they do it? Do those books simply tell half the story? Do they use bad science? Do they rely on studies that haven't been peer-reviewed? I would urge people who have that same question, I think a lot of people do, to take a look at my book because it requires, you know, uh, more than a sentence or two. But the answer is it's really a sin of omission, I think. Um, you've got the whole issue of processing that is not dealt with sufficiently or even at all in these books. And processing is the culprit as well as the salvation. If you're willing to long ferment, you are really pre and sprout. You are really saving yourself from 
many, many of the issues that people who think they're celiac sensitive have. The new book by author Stephen Yaffa is called Grain of Truth, The Real Case for and Against Wheat and Gluten. Stephen, it's been a really interesting hour. Thank you so much for making time for us. Chris, it was uh, enjoyable for me, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer with help on the phones today from Gus Contreras. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. If you want to send email to the show, that address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.